Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. So Kathy Wood, founder and CEO and CIO, and I'm sure she has a ton of other titles that we'll bring to you later at ARK Invest, has gotten a lot of attention lately. Her stellar fund performance has been marred after a sell-off and golfed some of their biggest bets. Wood spoke with Bloomberg's Carol Masser and Tim Stenevec on Bloomberg Businessweek. Here's what she had to say. Well, I do believe uh, we, we love a wall of worry, and we were seeing the wall of worry start to build. I saw it on social media, a lot of um, mm-hmm. chatter, uh, some just waiting for uh, our funds in particular uh, to take a tumble, uh, some maybe to buy, uh, and some happy to sell and short and all of that. We love the liquidity that this provides us. Uh, we think it's very healthy, a very healthy shakeout. So that's, uh, I guess she needs no introduction. Uh, Carol Masser is who I'm talking about. Talking to Kathy Wood, um, really interesting because uh, she kind of marked the bottom there. She bought the dip and so did a number of others. Let's bring in Eric Balchunas to talk about it. Senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Is this the most popular um of the new ETFs, Eric, I mean, of course, GLD and JNK and some of the sort of plain vanilla ones, but is this the most popular special ETF? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the fastest growing asset manager in the country, if not the world, in terms of percentage growth. And it's not growth from like 1 million to 10 million. Um, it's basically from like 4 billion to 40, 50 billion. So it's tenfold over a year. Uh, you rarely see that kind of growth. And you rarely see it from a stock picker. Those have been out of favor. An indie issuer, there's not much distribution. She didn't have a lot of distribution network when she started. And also high cost. I mean, her funds are 75 basis points. Any one of those three things makes life very difficult in the ETF industry. She's all three and is now basically taking in as much flows as BlackRock. And it's the story is tremendous. Uh, can't take my eyes off of it. And obviously, the performance is what is driving this. You look at her performance and you know maybe half of it, uh, is uh, growth, tech, the cues, but the other half is really a hot hand, uh, and that's why she's getting the money, and you know other people who are doing well but not that well are not. Eric, you know some criticism of Kathy and of Arc is that it's just a derivative play on Tesla, it's a derivative play on maybe Bitcoin and maybe some of the hot names, Apple, Amazon, or whatever. It's really just reflective of what's going on in the Nasdaq 100. What do you make of that? I mean, there's a little truth to that. The Tesla call was major, but then that's about a fifth of ARKK's return, though. So a fifth is major, but it's yep. not It's not nearly – it's not even close to half. Uh, you look, she's got 25% internet stocks, also 15% biotech, software, uh, commercial services. It's pretty – it's across the board, and that's part of what I think she really tapped into back in the day. Uh, there was a lot of sector ETFs and some industry ETFs, but she said, you know – I don't want to be locked into a gig sector or an industry here, and I also don't want to be locked into a rule. So she said, we're going to go after innovation, and she, I think, really tapped into this nature of how stocks are hard to classify these days, uh, namely Tesla and Amazon. Um, but if you look at her performance, the other thing that's interesting about it is she only has a 1% overlap with the S&P 500. 
So as well as the S&P's done, she's figured out returns that aren't even in those benchmarks, which has also helped her in terms of marketing because she can say, look, you own the S&P. You don't need this active manager that has basically most of the S&P plus a couple bets. You should go with me. I'm completely different. And I can hedge you from the value stocks that you have in your S&P. And that's a pretty powerful pitch, in my opinion, that goes even beyond just coming in and saying, hey, my return rules. By the way, a fifth isn't even half of a half, I wanted to point out. <laughs> That's how far away it is Math, from mathematician. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because when Kathy Wood, when the inflows were like supercharged, um, all the critics were like, oh, this is bad. She's got too much money. She she can't work with such, with such a high amount of inflows. Um, so I thought it was interesting that she did say this is healthy yesterday. I mean... Um, it's difficult to be to have so much firepower, isn't it? Yeah. So on one hand, there's some stocks where she's over a 10% owner, uh, maybe about a dozen or so. That's tough because when you see inflows, you're going to have to buy those stocks. You'll have impact costs. And there's been a front running. People know what she holds every day. <clears throat> we are in kind of a new world here because she's transparent. Back in the day when you had a Peter Lynch or a hot manager, you didn't know really what they held. Um, in addition, uh, she shows the holdings every day in the trades, and so you can go ahead and, and front run her or at least mm. invest with her. Uh, but the flows, I think they're, you know, this is part of the issue, which it can create a little bit of an upward spiral. The flows come in, you buy the stocks, stocks go up, you get more flows, and it could go a little bit on the downward. However, I know she's taken a couple, uh, there's a couple things you can do with some mega cap names to help with cash management. She can do cash in lieu. There's a few tricks there. Her argument is, well, I'm investing in stocks that are going to grow a lot anyway. And I also think that SPACs and IPOs are going to replenish the market. So um, I've heard some people push back on both of those, but that's her argument. But largely, she said they were built for scale. I will say, though, if you look at her small cap holdings, they have dwindled down to nothing. Um, mm -hmm. They used to be about 10%, and they are gone. So she is going to be forced into large caps a little. I think that's uh, the reality of the situation. But it certainly hasn't done too much of the performance yet. Hey, Eric. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Eric. We really appreciate that update. Just a fascinating story uh, on Kathy Wood and ARK, and you've been on top of it from a research perspective. Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'll tell you, within the whole Bloomberg complex, I don't think there's anybody who is uh, smarter uh, and more on top of this whole ETF We're space. We're lucky and to have funds, Yeah, and the funds flows there have just been extraordinary, and Eric's been all over it, so we appreciate his thoughts. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the CEO of Quill Intelligence uh, and the former Fed advisor. Um, uh, so we are going to bring her in in order to get more on what we heard from Powell yesterday and what we expect from uh, Fed Chair Powell today. Danielle, um, what do you think of the chairman? I thought yesterday was like, Goldilocks Powell, he was basically saying, no, rates aren't rising because of inflation. It's because of optimism for the economy. And that's exactly right, except for what Bloomberg Sebastian Boyd uh, uh, said a few hours ago that I tweeted out. You know, it, it's all good that rates are rising to reflect a reflating, happy economy. And you hear the birdies chirping in the background, except for the fact that the stock market is the economy and futures were down. And so this is, this is the ultimate trade-off. And the, the sensitivity uh, that we're seeing in housing, but also what we're seeing in investment-grade bonds. 
You know, if you look at the largest ETF, HYG, it's flat as a pancake year to date. If you look at LQD, which the Fed intervened directly in the largest investment grade ETF with its facilities that were shut down at year end, it's down more than 4%. So the, the market is telling you where your pressure points are in no uncertain terms. And in press conferences in the past, Powell has been very articulate about interest rate sensitive sectors. You've, you've got your Barclays Commercial Mortgage-Backed Securities Index about to turn negative for the year, interest rate sensitive sectors. So you can have all the reflating you want. You can have the vaccine narrative pulled off perfectly, flawlessly, but we still have a massively over-indebted economy that is acutely sensitive to even, I won't, I won't even say the smallest. Since August the 4th, we've had the, the yield on the 10-year triple. And people forget that even though rates are very low on an absolute basis, that the delta, the starting point matters. And to be triple off your lows in a matter yeah. of months, that, That's key. That, that can be dramatic markets. So, Danielle, again, Chairman Powell's message certainly from yesterday is consistent, which is lower for longer as it, re- as it relates to interest rates. But is there a risk that the markets are just going to pass him by and uh, it just kind of move on without him? Well, that is indeed the risk. And if you go back and read uh, what Lael Brainerd has said about what yield curve control would look like, she's talking about the short end of the curve. She's speaking about two-year paper, three-year paper. The market has this ingrained thinking that the, that the Fed is referring to the tenure or the long bond. That's not what the original narrative, that's not what the original game plan was to be. The yield curve control was to be in, in, implemented, and that's why a lot of market participants who are paying closer attention are saying further out on the maturity spectrum, further out on the maturity spectrum for the Fed to target long-term rates, which is why the wheels are falling off. He's not concerned about inflation, even though, you know, if I look at a chart of the five-year break-evens, it, it almost goes vertical. And... Uh, the government's about to spend another $2 trillion in stimulus. After that, they're going to want to talk about the next 2 3 $4 trillion <laughs> stimulus plan. Not, I'm not exaggerating with those numbers. Um, are you worried about it? So, you know, I mean, part of this is going to be withdrawing cash from the Treasury General account, the, 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 the government's checking account that's housed at the Fed. Stands so at $1.7 trillion right now. Exactly. So part of this is already part of this check has already been written, if you will. But that being said, this massive thing just happened where I am in Texas. So you are going to have a fundamental source of support for all of the things we've been talking about are driving inflation because of the supply chain disruption. Copper, steel, lumber, things that have been things that are already out of control, expensive, that the Fed is anticipating as being transitory in nature are going to have a longer impact, to say nothing of freight costs, which we anticipate staying very high. And it was interesting, Bloomberg did a great story a few weeks ago about the fact that we talk about all these deadhead freighters headed from the West Coast ports back to Shanghai empty. This is causing a huge disruption in the global food chain. You've got sugar that can't get out of India. You've got coffee that can't get out of Vietnam because there's not, there's not enough freighters out there. So the, uh, my concern for Powell is that 
that the persistence of inflation is going to be look and feel in the data beyond summer as more than a transitory moment. He's also talking about just citing some of his commentary from yesterday, you know, talking about the, the vaccines as a single best policy. He expects economic activity to bounce back strongly, especially in the second half of the year. GDP may grow 6% in 2021. Does that sound reasonable to you or is he perhaps a little optimistic? You know, that's what remains to be seen. If you do pure math and say this amount of money is going to get put into the economy, then, then you get that at the other end. But we have to bear in mind the houses have been purchased. Uh, Home Depot even, even put out a, a, a slight warning yesterday that said people might not redo their decks again. They just did them. And, you know, people who were forced to stay at home, they're not going to be pouring as much good spending mm-hmm into the economy and they can't make up for the vacations that they that they didn't take and they can't make up for the restaurants meals that they didn't have so you'll see that big bulge in service spending but you'll also see an offset as people leave their homes because they're no longer going to be you know basically inside of their homes and trapped and saying god I've, i've got to redo this bathroom it really is awful so that that level of spending on goods just because there's a vaccine is going to take a hit All right, Daniel, what's the biggest concern for you as we think about this reopening trade here in the economy? It seems like, again, we're getting some really good numbers, the metrics on the pandemic. We're getting some really good uh, data on the new vaccines, Johnson & Johnson today. What's some of the what are some of the big concerns that you think maybe the market's overlooking? So, again, I am following credit like a hawk. Okay, And we've also had the third test fail of if you if you add up. Uh, pandemic unemployment assistance to non-seasonally adjusted uh, state claims. You you may recall the Department of Labor changed the methodology midway through the panic. So I I add up those two initials every week, and we've crossed through 1.4 million three times in a row when we shouldn't be. We should be in the process of a slow decline and steady decline in jobless claims, and yet we're not seeing that. So I'm looking for that to show sustained improvement and get below that line and continue to improve. By the way, um, John Farrow was interviewing Brian Deese the other day and uh, trying to get trying to get a picture of whether or not um, Biden has met with Powell. He couldn't get an answer out of Deese. Do you think this relationship is going to be a lot different than Powell Trump? I don't think that there's anything to suggest that the relationship will be in any way, shape or form contentious. And we know that Powell has a great working relationship with Yellen. So the line of communication is technically wide open to the White House. Um, What I would say is I am not personally sure that a man of his means necessarily wants to sign up for four more years come next February. By the way, his birthday. So, you know, February of 2022. Powell's birthday, I reference. Right. So that may be something that is making it to where there is not justification to build this wonderful working relationship. If Powell himself is not positive, he wants to sign on for four more years. But again, Powell and Yellen have a right. very close working relationship. I wouldn't read too much into it. Hey, Danielle, thank you so much once again for joining us. Danielle Martino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill, former advisor also at the Dallas Federal Reserve. Right now, we go to Fed Chair Jerome Powell testifying before the House Financial Services Committee with Chairwoman Maxine Waters kicking off the the Q&A. 
Well, the story certainly has been over the last couple of days, Fed Chairman Powell and his testimony in front of Congress. And I think the takeaway is lower for longer, but the bond market says otherwise. We've had a nice move up in yields here. The 10 years up about five basis points just today, 1.39%. We'll call it the 30 year up six basis points, 2.24%. To help us get some perspective, uh, we love chatting with Ted Ravel. He's a chief, uh, Tad Ravel, chief investment officer for fixed income at TCW. Boy, when I went out to LA on my marketing trips, TCW was the first meeting you had to get on your calendar. Tad, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of Fed Chairman Powell's comments? A little bit, I guess, more of the same, would you say? Or are you reading anything else into it? It was totally more of the same. I mean, I think a a fair disaggregation of where the where the Fed's heads at is that they have pretty well committed to QE at the current pace, well through 2000 and say call it this year 21. It takes at least 12 months to taper if in fact you were going to do it. So that takes you through 2022. And then um, if there were going to be any rate rises, we're looking out into the next year beyond that 2023. Obviously, as you sort of alluded to, the market may have its own ideas about the advisability of a course of action of uh, a 0% policy, a $120 billion per month QE policy in the face of a uh, fiscal stimulus package that um, is just shy of $2 trillion. And given that the forecasts from the Atlanta Fed and so forth have uh, projected actually relatively elevated GDP, in 2021. And that's probably why you're seeing the, the, uh, the bond market react the way it is, which is to say the 10s and the 30s selling off as hard as, as they have in the last two to three months. So, I mean, one of the things I noticed that Powell said yesterday was that it's not inflation driving rates higher. It's optimism for the economic recovery. But at the same time, when I look at break-evens, it seems like the market does anticipate inflation to come back. And I can't imagine it's transient either, because you're not going to stop needing to buy copper or lumber (laughs) in the face of rebuilding better. Um, What do you think, Tad? Well, I I think the the discussion about inflation is is always a a bit squishy, and this is what I mean by it, that um, it can be defined narrowly, the way the Fed prefers to define it, which is to say that inflation is a form of currency debasement with respect to goods and services. But it can be defined a little bit more broadly. I don't know why it cannot be to include asset price and uh, inflation. I think that if you ask the man on the street, what, what does inflation mean to me? It means that I have to work longer and harder in order to get the things that I want. Now, if the if the reality is that uh, uh, the home that you want to live in has doubled in price and you have to come up with twice the down payment, d- depending upon what your income and your savings and so forth, it could take quite a, a long number of years. That represents a deterioration in your lifestyle. So to ignore asset price inflation and to substitute it with the owner's equivalent rent, this sort of this wonky construct that looks at the carry costs of a house, but not really the primary issue that I think confronts uh, particularly first-time home buyers, which is they can make the payment all right if someone would give them the 20% down. So if we're thinking about currency debasement in a larger context, maybe we've already had you know, some measure of, of inflation. 
And I also think that Fed pronouncements, not just Fed, but central banking pronouncements about inflation are, are inherently suspect because, first of all, they want, they are committed to a zero rate policy and they, because they have, in the case of the U.S., a, um, a statutory um, uh, constraint to, uh, to, to not allow, quote unquote, inflation get out of hand, um, naturally, they're going to forecast low rates of inflation. But look at their history. The history of central banks forecasting inflation is abysmal. It is really, it is really <laughs> bad when you look at, at the numbers that they have projected versus what's been realized. And then if you want to take a slightly academic and a longer, let's say a 50-year per- perspective on it, let's look at it this way. In the 60s, the Fed and, and uh, their colleagues said, we know inflation, we got this. It's Phillips curve. It's when unemployment gets too low. Whoops, in the 70s, you throw that in the trash. So then you say, okay, well, it's about monetary aggregates and the growth there, uh, there too. Well, that kind of went out, out the window as, as well. And by the way, M2, broad monetary uh, aggregates have grown about 30% over the last year, interestingly. Now the Fed says it's kind of psychological, it's your expectations and so forth. I guess my point is, is that when you have a fiat currency, there are all kinds of ways that inflation can probably rear its its very ugly head, simply because it really just comes down to the extent to which people trust the currency and trust in its long-term stability. If you're going to buy an apartment building in dollars today and you have a 10-year horizon associated with it or lend against it, you have to have some faith that uh, that, that dollars that you're going to receive or pay 10 years from now is going to be within spitting distance of what you contemplate in today's contract. Just like Bitcoin. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Just exactly like Bitcoin, which is why you can't make a long-term contract in Bitcoin because you have no idea whether you're going to um, be really unhappy or whether your counterparty is going to be, be, be really unhappy about <laughs> it. So, so anyway, my, my point is, is that the Fed is going to say what it needs to say, which is inflation is well-controlled, even though they don't really know what inflation is. They define it narrowly, and they have had a terrible history of forecasting it. All right. So, Ted, the, the Fed is doing its job. It is you know, keeping rates, keeping liquidity in, into the marketplace. What do you expect or what do you need to see or what do you think the market needs to see coming out of Washington in terms of stimulus? It appears that the $1.9 trillion is pretty much good to go. How are you viewing that and, and maybe even a backup stimulus on the on the back of that? Right. So, uh, you know, I was asked this question, you know, recently that uh, doesn't the uh, market response of the last year and the Fed's actions sort of prove the people that uh, advocated modern monetary theory, weren't they right that basically you can just print money and, you know, just do helicopter drops and there's only benefits associated with it. And I guess time will tell, but the, 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 the thought that occurred to me was if you ask a doctor, what they'll tell you is that many medicines become poisonous at, at higher dosages or different dosages. And many poisons are medicines, like Botox, for instance, if you, uh, if you, uh, regulate, if you regulate the dosage. Okay, so when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you dosed it the way you did, uh, I give credit to all of the policymakers. They, they, they appear to have, have under great duress, actually calculated and done very well. So does that mean that you just keep giving the patient the medicine because when they were sick, uh, they got better? And now that they are you know, looking a lot better in some ways, I don't mean to minimize the pain and 
restaurant industries, hotel industries, and so forth, that mm-hmm. is very, very, very serious and maybe very structural. But if it is, in fact, structural, doing right. more helicopter drops isn't going to solve the problem. You can't, you can't stimulate, I mean, I hate to say it, but if I could, you, you can't stimulate a, a hotel that just no That's longer good. has an economic function. You'll, you'll have somebody has to make good the operating loss. Zombie hotel. <laughs> hey, Tad, thanks so much yeah. for joining us. We really appreciate it. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW Group. Let's talk a little bit about vaccines. We just got a story out from Johnson & Johnson. Its COVID vaccine was found to be pretty effective. 72% is the mark that they got in an era when I'm personally thinking like it's got to be 80 or 90 or I don't want it. Let's bring in Sam <laughs> Fazelli to uh, set me proof, straight you know. here. He's our senior pharmaceutical analyst and head of EMEA research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Sam, I know that actually 70%, that's better than the typical flu vaccines that, that we get every year, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, and Matt, I mean, these are all these vaccines have so far been better than the usual typical flu vaccine efficacy that you're seeing. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And also, we have to be careful that when we look at these things, because we have a, we have to dissect away. What are we what are we worried about? Are we worried about ending up in hospital and getting severe disease or are we worried about um, catching the sniffles, as they call it? Some people. So this this certainly gets better when you look at just the severe disease. Hey Sam, I, I know in the UK you guys have had some pretty good success with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. My question is, it's working well for you guys. How come it's not approved here in the US? The Germans don't want it either. Ah. Yeah, well, no, and I don't get that because wasn't somebody, one of the politicians in Germany recently said, oh, "I'm going to go and get this Astra vaccine or something." I mean, they're trying to walk some of that back because. I think people are realizing that in Europe, and I'll come back to you, Paul, in a second, in Europe, they're kind of potentially shooting themselves in the foot after having shouted at the company for several weeks about supply and contract, and they've uh, dissed the vaccine so much that there's a risk that they're, um, that people will just turn their nose up at it. So, so there's that risk. But back in the U.S., of course, um, we, you know, they're running a large U.S. trial from which we expect data any day any week, any day. So I think the regulator Mm -hmm. in the US, the FDA, will require that. I'll give you the lowdown here. So what happened was the Germans were, I think, frustrated because they really dropped the ball when it came to stocking up on vaccines. And there was some back and forth with AstraZeneca. At the same time, Germany's biggest paper, which is actually, I believe, the most widely circulated newspaper in the world, the Bildzeitung, released a story saying the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't work for people over 65. And they cited a German government source. So it looked like the Germans were kind of throwing AstraZeneca under the bus because of this spat that they were having. Turns out it was because um, the newspaper kind of understood the facts incorrectly. It was a couple of newspapers. And so ever since then, um, here in Germany, people don't think it works for the old for the older crowd. But the real um, the real facts were that it just wasn't tested on the older crowd, right, Sam? That's right. That's right. The fact is that there was only like six hundred sixty eight subjects in the sixty plus sixty five plus range. So you just don't know the answer. And we know that the vaccine in separate trials induced just as good of immune response in in people of older age than those of younger age. Um, Listen, 
bottom line, uh, Airfinity came out today and said the EU is finally ramping up its vaccines. And if they can get the shots in arms, um, we should be to 75 percent vaccinated by August in the U.S. I know it's been widely uh, panned, but there was one Johns Hopkins professor who said we could see herd immunity by April, even if you think he's way too optimistic, Sam. Are we going to be good by the end of the year in the Western world? Uh, yeah, Matt, the answer to that is, is yes, so long as we don't fall foul of the variants, so long as they mm-hmm. don't end up taking hold in our regions while we're vaccinating, and so long as they don't actually prove more problematic as regards to the vaccines. Uh, and if that ends up being the case, then... And I think we have a possibility that we'll end up with certainly fewer hospitalizations, even in that case. But we will need to go back and revaccinate everybody with a booster shot. Sam, should people care which vaccine they get? I'm sensing that Matt Miller's going to be a little bit of a vaccine snob here. He's only going to want the one with the, the highest efficacy. Or should we just, whatever they jab in our arm, we'll take it? I mean, with the, with the current story that we have today, if I go into a doctor and he says to me, Sam, I've got your vaccine, this is it, I'll just take it, whatever it is. Um, I, I have the least confidence in, and this is not because they come from China, it's because I don't like the data that I've seen, mm-hmm. in the Sinopharm and Sinovac vaccine. Uh, Sputnik Five or V, um, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, whatever it is, I'll take them all. I'll tell you what, for me, this is the honest truth. Much like um, Eric Balchunas speaks gospel when it comes to ETFs, for me, whatever Sam says is what I end up (laughs) believing. Because I have fun with these crazy conspiracy theories. And yeah, I want Sputnik 5 because of the collectability of it. But at the end of the day, if Sam says just take what they give you, I'm going to take whatever they want. And that's, give me. I think that's smart. I've known Sam for 12 years, and he is the pharma guy uh, out there. He's our go-to guy, and we appreciate him giving us some time here. Sam Fazelli, Senior Pharma Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He also has some management duties. He manages all of the European research efforts for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's located somewhere in Europe. I never know where he is. The UK, How cool France. would it be, though, to get Sputnik 5? Like, yeah, in your, that, in your neighborhood, you'd probably be the only one who got it, for the sure. The only kid who had it. And I, I heard it's effective. So, I mean, you know, you, it's interesting. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot out there, as efficacy. Sam was saying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot out there. More and more is coming. The scientists have really come through. Now it's up to the, to the supply chain to get it out there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.